All right, so it's going to be useful to have access to a Bible this morning. Um, if you're in the pews, you should have them in front of you. If you're at the back, then you probably don't. Um, Sade and John Barron, I wonder if you could hand out Bibles. There's a whole um, rack of them in the back there. So stick your hand up if you don't have, if you can't see a Bible, and Sade and John will give one to you. So uh, I see a lot of visitors this morning, which is great. Um, and you guys should know that we've spent the last four weeks in the book of Jonah, going through the book of Jonah. And if you've been here, then you expected that we were done with Jonah, didn't you? Well, surprise! We've got a bonus track this morning. Um, because as we thought about it, um, it really didn't seem fair to poor old Jonah to leave him where we did at the end of last week. In other words, to leave him where he is at the end of his book. Because Jonah, at the end of his book, is mad at God, and he's in the wrong, and God's showing him that he's in the wrong. Um, but that really isn't the end of the story for Jonah. Um, and that isn't the last word on his life. There's a much better word to say for Jonah, and it's a word that Jesus says of him. So we're going to start this morning looking in Matthew chapter 12. You can turn that up. Um, it's page 817 of your pew Bibles, Matthew chapter 12. Um, and this is a word that Jesus says that really transforms everything we think about the prophet Jonah. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This morning, I want to show you that the sign of Jonah is the sign of resurrection. And that as a result, it's appropriate to think of Jonah as the prophet of resurrection. Um, and then, with that in mind, I want to briefly look back at the life of Jonah as a whole and draw out three aspects of resurrection that we learn from his life. So we're going to start off by staying in Matthew 12 a bit longer before we turn back to look at the book of Jonah. So Matthew 12, verse 38. Now this happens after Jesus has been in ministry a long time, and he's done a lot of things, and he's said a lot of things. But the scribes and the Pharisees come to him at this late point in his ministry and they ask him for a sign. And presumably what they want is a sign that Jesus was trustworthy, that he was sent with the power and authority of God. But it's really hard to say what they were looking for, since every conceivable sign had already been given by this point. So maybe they were interested in astrological signs. Maybe they were stargazers looking at the stars. Well, the Magi could have told them that the star of Bethlehem satisfied that criteria. Or maybe they were interested in a genealogical sign. Well, Jesus' mother Mary could have explained to them that Jesus was directly descended from King David and that he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Or maybe they were looking for a sign of the fulfillment of the law. Jesus, they might remember, had just come down from a mountain where he delivered the words of God and interpreted the law of Moses and said that he came to fulfill the law. So maybe they were looking for a prophetic sign, a sign of the coming age. 
But Jesus said to John the Baptist's followers, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. What more was Isaiah talking about? Well, what about the signs of the coming Messiah from Jewish scholarship? And we've talked about those as well already. There were three messianic miracles, and Jesus did all three. What sign are they looking for? What can he possibly do that he hasn't already done? I can't think of any conceivable criteria that could possibly prove that Jesus was who he claimed to be and that he did indeed come with the power and authority of God that he hadn't already shown by Matthew chapter 12. So what was it that the scribes and the Pharisees were asking for? I really don't know. They're being remarkably hard-hearted, and Jesus does call them an evil and adulterous generation. But then he does promise them one more sign. There is a sign still to come, and he called it the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus said that just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, Jesus would be three days in the belly of the earth. And since we know the rest of Jesus' story, the three days in the belly of the earth he's referring to can only be the three days that he spent dead between his crucifixion and his resurrection. But the sign to the Pharisees and scribes wasn't a sign that Jesus died. Everybody dies. The sign was that he rose again, that he was dead for only three days and no more. So just as Jonah emerged alive from the belly of the fish, so Jesus emerged alive from the belly of the earth. The sign of Jonah, then, is the sign of resurrection. When we think about the story of Jonah and the resurrection of Jesus, the two events have very close parallels. So they match numerically, three days and three days. They match linguistically. In Jesus' words, he talks about the belly of the fish and the belly of the earth. They match symbolically because Jesus was very literally dead for those days. Jonah, as we've said, might have been literally dead, but he was certainly at least symbolically dead because he says in chapter 2 that he descended to Sheol, which was the Hebrew name for the place of the dead. They match in resolution. Both Jonah and Jesus emerged alive but with no witnesses to the actual moment of rebirth. So Jonah was coughed up on a beach with no witnesses, and Jesus came out of the tomb with no witnesses. And the two events match in consequence. The consequence in both cases is that many thousands of people were saved through those risings. So Jonah went to Nineveh, preached there, and 120,000 people were saved that day. Jesus commissioned his disciples, and soon after, on Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. And of course, that was just the first fruits. So the sign of Jonah is the sign of resurrection. And so I think as a result, it's fair to call Jonah the prophet of resurrection. Jonah testifies to the reality and the power of resurrection more than anybody else in the Old Testament. So in the New Testament, the idea of resurrection is enormously important, and you find it everywhere. Jesus was raised from the dead, and we are raised with him to new life in the Spirit. On the last day, when Jesus comes back, 
all the dead will be raised and given new bodies. So resurrection is the heart of our faith, it's the heart of our Christian life, and it's the heart of our future hope. You can't get much more important than the idea of resurrection. But where is it in the Old Testament? Honestly, it's hardly to be found at all. If I had to argue merely from the Old Testament that the idea of resurrection was important to a skeptic who was convinced that it wasn't, I would be very nervous about that debate. Because here's really all we have. If you're taking notes, here's the list of everything the Old Testament says about resurrection. We've got Abraham in Genesis 22, who offers his son Isaac as a sacrifice, and then he receives him back alive. Hebrews 11 interprets this story by saying, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive his son back. So the New Testament sees a resurrection theme here. Not sure they would have seen it before that. Then we've got Job in chapter 19, who speaks these wonderful words. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh will I see God. Then we've got David who prophesies in Psalm 16 that you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter, as we read earlier, grabbed onto this idea in his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2. And he explained that that can't be talking about David himself because he obviously died. So it must be a prophecy about the resurrection of Jesus. And then finally, we have two stories in the Old Testament of Elijah and Elisha, the two great prophets who miraculously raised a child from the dead. That's in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4. Other than that, pretty much nothing in the whole Old Testament about the idea of resurrection except for the life of Jonah. Daniel 12. Daniel 12. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's important. Daniel 12 is a very important text to look at. Okay, cool. Well, we'll look at that. <laughs> okay, so this, with this material, the Pharisees um, in the first century did firmly believe in the resurrection from the dead. So it was enough material to convict the Pharisees of that. But it was a little enough material that the Sadducees denied it. So you might remember there was a famous conflict between um, the Pharisees and Jesus over the resurrection of the dead, and that Jesus cleverly contradicted them um, by saying that God repeatedly introduced himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and Jesus pointed out that he's not the God of the dead, but the living. All right, it's still fair to say that the Old Testament says very little on the subject of resurrection, and that Jonah and his life says more than anyone. So I think Jonah deserves to be called the prophet of resurrection. Are you happy with that? All right, that sounds good. Okay. <laughs> um, so let's turn back to the book of Jonah. It's on page 774 of the Pew Bibles. Um, and as I said, we've been preaching through it for the past four weeks. And um, if you missed any of those sermons and you want to go back and hear them, you can find all the recordings on our website. 
But what I wanted to do today is to think about the story of Jonah as a whole and thinking about him as the prophet of resurrection. I want to think about what do we learn about resurrection from the prophet Jonah. So there's a little Bible college proverb that I love that says that the old is in the new concealed and the new is in the old revealed. Okay, the old is in the new concealed, and the new is in the old revealed. And what that means is that almost everything we find clearly taught in the New Testament is also present in the Old Testament, just in a different form. It's in the old concealed. And almost everything we read in the, in the Old Testament is in some way explained and organized in the New Testament. It's in the new revealed. So the Old Testament helps us to understand the New Testament because it gives us stories and examples and real-world situations that anchor and ground the New Testament teaching. So, for example, if you want to understand the idea of redemption, which comes up all over in the New Testament, you go back to the Old Testament and you look at the picture of a slave being bought back for money and set free. And that's the idea of redemption. And conversely, the New Testament helps us to understand the Old Testament because it interprets what we're looking at in all those stories. It tells us what to make of them and what we're supposed to do about them. So the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. The two parts of the Bible strengthen and reinforce each other. So we've just seen how Jesus in the New Testament reinterprets the life of Jonah by associating Jonah with his own resurrection. And now what we're going to do is look at the other side of the equation. Given that, given that interpretation of Jonah that Jesus gives us, how does Jonah in the Old Testament deepen and expand our understanding of resurrection itself? And here are three things the life of Jonah shows us. That resurrection is God's final answer to death, that resurrection is the start of everything good, and that resurrection is the driving force of God's saving message. So I want to look at those things very briefly. First, that resurrection is God's final answer to death. Now that sounds very obvious, but we need to keep hearing it. So we all know that death is the greatest enemy of human life. We live every day in the shadow of it, protecting ourselves from it as much as we can, coping with its many effects on our bodies and minds, and fending off the looming fear that it will come to us and to our loved ones. Death mocks our dreams and achievements. It has the ultimate leverage over us because it can strip from us absolutely everything that we care about. And we have no answer to death. Politics has no answer. Science has no answer. Medicine has no answer. So if religion is going to be worth anything at all, then it has to come up with a decent answer to death. And you find that every religion takes a stab at it and has some sort of answer to death. And here's the answer we find in the Bible. God's answer to death is resurrection. Amen. In some ways, that's a bit of a dissatisfying answer. Or maybe not the answer we might have chosen. 
Because does it mean that I still have to die? Yes. Will my body still decay and deteriorate? Yes. Will I still lose my friends and my family suddenly and tragically? Yes. And do I still have to live in a world full of horror and violence? Yes. Well, that's not much of an answer then. It doesn't do very much about the problem. But actually, the more we think about it, the more resurrection does become a good answer to death. Because what resurrection means is that death can't take anything away from us that God can't give back. Death takes our bodies and minds away, but God gives them back. Death takes our friends and families away, but God gives them back. And death takes our hopes and our dreams away, but God gives them back. And what he gives back is so much better than what was ever taken. So resurrection is about giving more life than death ever stole away and enabling God to give us more life than he would merely by shielding us from death. And of course, God's solution of resurrection works not only in the present and the future, but also in the past. It applies retroactively to every past death and every past loss. They're no longer gone forever, but God gives them back too. So when we think about it, maybe resurrection turns out to be a pretty decent answer to death, or even a good answer or maybe even the best answer it's possible to imagine. That's what Jonah discovered in the belly of the fish. This is Jonah chapter 2, verse 6. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Is there anything more desperate than that? Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah discovered something absolutely magnificent that when he was there, all the way down in the pit of death, God was still there. God was still powerful. God still had authority, and he could still bring him back. So what then is the limit of God's power to save? And Jonah's situation looked as hopeless and desperate as any that we can imagine. But it wasn't beyond the power of God to turn it around. That's the glory of resurrection. It's God's power to turn the story around. Long after we think he possibly could, he brings life out of death and new creation out of disintegration. So a couple of weeks ago, I met with a mother who just lost her 20-year-old son to a sudden and tragic death. And I'd never met her before, but she was a friend of a friend. So I went to see her and talked to her. And I knew that my job was mostly just to sit there and listen. So I asked a few questions, and I gave her space to talk and remember and tell stories. And then after a while, she asked me to tell her what heaven would be like. So I told her as best I knew. And then at some point, I found myself saying this to her. God isn't in the business of shielding us from death but he is in the business of resurrection. And we both went quiet for a moment, and then she asked me to say that again. <laughs> Our God isn't in the business of shielding us from death, but he is in the business of resurrection. Now, when I say that, of course, I don't mean that God can't shield us from death, or that he won't, or that he doesn't. 
Because of course he does. He shields us from death every day. He answers our prayers for protection, and he leads us along safe paths. But that isn't his final answer to death. That isn't his solution. His final answer is resurrection. So God won't always shield us and the people we love from death. He never promises that, and we shouldn't expect it. When death comes to us, it's allowed to grieve us, but it should never confuse us. We shouldn't need to look around wondering who sinned or who failed to pray or why did God let this happen. Because if we do those things, it shows that we really wanted God to have a different answer to death. But that's not his answer. His answer is resurrection. And he's made that his business in every single life. Every case. The story isn't over yet. We shall all be raised. All our stories have a miraculous turning point just like Jonah's. That is a promise of God for us to hold on to because Jesus said in John, verse, John chapter 6, verse 40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Whatever happens in our lives, whatever happens, that is still true. And the truth that the and the truth is that that story can always be redeemed. And that's the foundation of our hope and our joy. That's what we see in Jonah chapter 2. So resurrection is God's final answer to death. My other two points are shorter, don't worry. Uh, okay, second, resurrection is the start of everything good. So resurrection isn't the end of the story, it's the beginning. It wasn't the finish line for Jonah, it was the starting gate so Jonah's coughed up on the beach at the end of chapter 2, and then his story starts over in chapter 3. It begins in chapter 3 with the same words as chapter 1, verse 1. And so our life with God also begins with resurrection. Resurrection needs to happen first, before anything else. Just as Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And we can see something of what that means when we look at Jonah. Jonah's experience in chapter 2 was a kind of baptism, wasn't it? Because Jonah went down into the water and repented, and then he turned from his idols and put his faith fully in God alone, and then he came up again from the water to new life and was born again. So Jonah's death and resurrection was a kind of baptism. And Jesus also described his own death and resurrection as a baptism. That's in Mark 10, verse 38. So when James and John asked Jesus if they could sit at either side of Jesus in his glory, Jesus responded, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? So if those two deaths and resurrections were each a kind of baptism, it would make sense for baptism itself to be a kind of death and resurrection. And that's exactly how Paul describes it in Romans 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life? 
So we see that the life of Jesus was bookended by baptisms. There's a baptism at the beginning and a baptism at the end. He received the baptism of John in the Jordan River at the start of his ministry, and then the baptism of his crucifixion and resurrection at the end of his life. And so, too, our Christian lives are bookended by baptisms. So they start with water baptism, where we participate in Jesus' death and resurrection, and they end with our own literal death, followed by resurrection. So that means when we're baptized with the water, it's a ceremony that points both backwards and forwards. It points back to Jesus, to his death and resurrection, and forwards to the time when we will literally follow him into death and come out the other side, raised to eternal life. And then our final resurrection is, of course, not the end of this story, but the beginning of the next one. So our baptisms in the past should give us confidence of our resurrection in the future. Because we've already been raised once. We've already been brought through death and resurrection. We followed that path of Jesus and that path of Jonah. And so we have no fear of going that way again. We know that path. We know that it's a path of joy. On the other side of it is praise and glory. We're raised to continue our life with God and worship him eternally. So at the end of Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, look down at verse 9, and we find this wonderful little phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's a very rare phrase in Scripture. There's only a couple of other places in the whole Bible where we hear it but you probably know one of them as we read it. Because one of them is in Revelation chapter 7. It's the song of resurrection of the redeemed in heaven. The great multitude of resurrected people from every nation, tribe, people, and language sing this. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. They sing it because they came through death and out the other side. So death ceases to be something to fear because death leads to resurrection. And resurrection is the start of everything good. Now finally, resurrection is the driving force of God's saving message. I don't think it's any coincidence that Jonah, the prophet of resurrection, saw the greatest response to his message of any prophet in the Bible. 120,000 people saved. When Jesus offered his most hard-hearted skeptics one more sign, it was the sign of resurrection. And I think that's because resurrection is the most powerful testimony to God's wisdom and his power and his goodness. It leads us to worship him and to turn our hearts to him. Because when somebody's dead, we're really lost, like Jonah in the depth of the ocean, and God reaches down and rescues that person, then it proves that God is wise, that he should even know how to do that. And it proves that God is mighty, that he should care to be able to do that. And it proves that God is good, that he should have mercy to do that for that person. Because the person himself could do nothing 
to help himself. It proves that God did everything. And so all of the glory goes straight to God. That God should be in the business of raising his people from death demonstrates the very heart of the good news. That salvation comes only through the grace of God, entirely apart from any human effort. God does it all and gets all the glory. So resurrection lies at the very heart of God's saving message. Throughout this sermon series of Jonah, we've talked a lot about mission, about joining God on his mission of compassion to save the lost, and especially about international mission. And that's because the book of Jonah has a lot to say about mission. So I want to close our studies in Jonah with one more lesson about mission from this prophet. Here at Incarnation, one of our core values is no mission without a foretaste of the kingdom. And when we say this, what we mean is that what we pass on is what we ourselves have received. What we serve up to other people is what we have tasted. A real personal encounter with the kingdom of God is essential to Christian mission. And today I want to add this. When you reach out to people with the good news of Jesus, focus on resurrection. Let resurrection be the driving force of mission. You live in the power of resurrection and in the hope of resurrection. So speak of that power and of that hope. You've been raised from the dead, so declare that salvation belongs to God.